Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people to life in Yarra and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Yarra Libraries, the Ewing Trust and Fitzroy Legal Service are happy to be joined today by Eleni Hale, author of Stone Girl, a powerful and moving novel about a girl who becomes a ward of the state. Stone Girl is available at all good bookstores as well as available to borrow via Yarra Libraries. Eleni is joined in conversation by Anna Spargo Ryan, author of novels The Gulf and The Paper House. In 2016, Anna received the Horn Prize, an award for long-form non-fiction writing for the piece The Suicide Gene. Now, over to Eleni and Anna. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Bunwarung people, traditional owners of the unceded land on which I live and work and pay my respects to elders past and present. Eleni Hale is a multi-award winning writer, including the 2019 Readings Young Adult Book Prize for Stone Girl, published by Penguin Random House. Through gripping, emotive and spare writing, she creates characters that stay with readers long after they close the book. Welcome, Eleni. Thank you for that introduction. Hi, Anna. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm cold and well, thank you. <laughs> thank you to the Fitzroy Writers Festival for having us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's so good to be part of these festivals again after a year of um, relative silence, though we are still online. So today we're going to talk about your book, Stone Girl, um, which, as I mentioned, is a multi-award winning and shortlisted and long-listed book, a wonderful piece of writing that covers some pretty serious issues as they relate to, especially to kids um, and the systems that we have in place in this country uh, that don't always help people who really need them. So, um, yeah, so we'll talk a bit about the book and about the issues that you raise in it and then how they play out in real life and how we use fiction to talk about serious things that deserve and need more attention. Yeah, I'm so happy that issues like this are still being covered. In the diversity movement, we've had some wonderful action, but I feel that socioeconomic Um, disparities and particularly kids in homes um, and kids without parents and people who are homeless have kind of fallen off the edge of this discussion. So it's always good to talk about it. Mm. Yeah. So how can fiction help people to better understand social issues? Well, fiction is escape. There's so many of us who are addicted to reading and Um, We love to dive into someone else's life and live those circumstances and see what makes them tick, how they make their decisions, uh, so that uh, in really good writing you'll find yourself forgiving the character for all kinds of things because you can see what their thought process is. Um, And with social issues, I think this works very well because you will get to know a character that you might avoid in the real world, Um, someone who you might not understand or might not um, have in your social circle is suddenly Mm. someone whose footsteps you're walking in. Um, You know, writing is eye-opening, exciting, upsetting. We barrack for the protagonists and 
with characters who are troubled, we get to maybe understand mm. something we didn't understand before. You know, I have a belief that, um, and you see this in social media all the time, I don't even need to expand on the issue, but uh, there's a lot of people out there who have very quick judgments. And, are there? Um, Surely very, not. Yeah. Oh, there's a couple, <laughs> just a couple. Um, you know, snapshot decisions about what another person is like, why they made the decision, and in a way what they're worth. Uh, and I think that people who read books soften the boundaries of these judgments and have a more fluid perception of others, more compassion, and I would like to say make for a better world if only everybody read mm. books. So I wish there were more books around social issues than there are. Uh, I wish there weren't so many cliched uh, stories of kids in care. There's so many portrayals that make me cringe. Um, what makes you cringe yeah, about those other books or other stories? The the go-to, uh, and I usually throw the book across <laughs> the page and then my husband comes in and says, what happened? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it'll be um, someone's made all these terrible decisions and lo and behold we find out they didn't have parents growing mm. up. Aha, there we go. Quickly judge them and put them away. You know, and, and the character that is saved is the one who's loved the most, the one who has parents. And then you see this sort of easy disposal of characters who don't have um, the social supports. So, yeah, I really hate that. And I mean, that goes back a long way, right? Like even old Disney movies where the mother is always dead and the father is never there and that's the plot, that's sort of the the inciting incident for a story is the inevitable trouble of of not having parents and this kind of archetype of the, the parentless child and what we assume Absolute. that child's going to be like. We learned that right from the beginning. Absolutely, and it's a very clever uh, like you see Harry Potter, for example, mm. could he get any lower? He's got no one. He's even got a scar on his forehead. He lives with foster parents. So then his journey to, you know, amazing magical abilities <laughs> is, is even greater because he came from such a low low stance. And I don't mind those kind of stories too much. It's more the dismissal of characters mm. with a background that that isn't cosy and loved and, and yeah, those sort of bad characters we see in books that we quickly say, oh, right, that they, they come from that background, aha, there's the, there's the reason they're, mm. they're not worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think something that Stone Girl does really well is take us from who Sophie was when her mother died, which is not a spoiler, um, but we go through the journey with her of how that circumstance and then being in the home's system, how that has an impact on her life in a very realistic way that we see echoed in the experiences of real-life kids who go through this system. How have you been able to use a character like her, like Sophie, to help someone to understand how a teenager or a young adult gets to where they are with the ability to give the background what that experience is like, what that person has been through, where they've come from, how the system has failed them and all these kind of important steps along the way that take someone to where they eventually end up. How does having a character like Sophie help you to help somebody better understand that? What you just said is the kind of the key issue 
the reason I wrote the book. I remember once, many years after I was in a similar situation like Sophie, I was standing at the train station and I was off to work in the city. Up the platform a bit, there was a group of teenagers and they had um, mismatched clothing, really bad haircuts. Um, They were loud, they were obnoxious and they were kind of scary. And I remember watching people avoid them by getting into a different carriage. Um, You know, people would sigh and mumble under their breath where the kids couldn't hear. Um, And there was this feeling of fear um, when they looked at these kids. And they reminded me of kids in care. Mm. And I, I remember being struck by the idea that all people saw were these outward behaviors of these kids who had, um, you know, they're like razor wire kids. You know, they've grown these outward shells to scare people off for a very good reason and that's Mm. because terrible things have happened to them. But all people can see is the razor wire is if I get too close to that person, I might get hurt. So, And I remember standing there and thinking, what if people really knew that they could end up like that if they didn't have all the supports? if they had lived in multiple homes or didn't have anybody to kind of tell them it's okay to be who you are and you're safe, that they could end up like that. And so I had been riding Stone Girl for a very, very long time, (laughs) Um, but I started it when Sophie was older uh, and I was finding myself struggling to show her vulnerabilities because she'd kind of already become one of those kids. So then I went back and I started writing it from when she was 12 years old. Mm. Uh, the book goes from when she's 12 to 15 to 18. Um, so it's really fun to write all those different ages and have her voice across across that plethora of um, experience. But um, So I took her back to 12 and I showed her when the hope was alive because every kid has a, mo- has a time when that's the case, when they feel like, you know, the world's a magical place and there is hope, there is that moment where they change into something else. That's what I believe anyway. It might not be true for everybody, but it's it's something that um, I hold quite true. And I wanted to show the moment when Sophie really flicks from mm. one thing into the other and, and to show what she did in the hope that people would then travel with her uh, and see why she makes the decision she makes because even though they don't like those decisions they can see that hang on these other things happen to her and this is her rationality it might not be mine but I get where she's coming from so yeah I hope that with with a character that they followed from an innocent point into kind of um the darkness and the the razor blades and I mean that in a metaphor as a metaphor Mm. razor blades (laughs) like her personality becomes quite sharp Mm. um that they would understand her more. Mm. Yeah, and I mean help us understand other kids like her better as well. I found that while I was reading it that, you know, it really made me think about kids like her who, and Sophie is extremely likeable at the beginning, especially where you really deeply feel for this kid who's just suddenly alone in the world and who has no sense of what's going to happen to her next and that nobody can really help her it, that could be any kid, as you say. You know, this, it doesn't take much for someone to start on this experience. It's we're so many Australians are always precariously close to homelessness um, that you start to, or I found that I, I imagined, 
yeah, uh, all these other kids like Sophie who don't have anywhere to be, who don't have people who love them, who and they're real life kids. I mean, Sophie is obviously a fictional character, but that doesn't, you know, doesn't detract from the reality of her experience and that there are so many children, little little children for whom this is true every day in Australia. So true. I mean, I, I try not to go over my own experiences too much because, you know, I've, I'm far away from that and there's so many who are living it right now. But um, I, I do remember living in care and being in a home and I was older so I felt a bit stronger and there were these three siblings there and one was well, one was a baby and one was maybe four and the other one was about eight and I just remember feeling so sorry for them because they were still at that sort of needy hopeful stage mm. um and I just you know I never I'll never forget them and when I think about kids in care I think about them and I think about some of the older kids as well um you know there's about 50,000 kids at any one time around Australia living in care and that's 50,000 real children um who don't have parents or a home to live in mm. what are the real world outcomes for kids like Sophie so, look, there's a lot of, you know, awful statistics around what happens uh, in the first year after kids come out of care. Um, you know, 40% are homeless within a year. Um, nearly 50% of boys and 22% of girls are in the criminal justice system. Um, I, I think this is a little uh, conservative, but, you know, 54% have mental health issues. I'll probably venture to say it's a bit higher mm. than that. Um, you know, 17% are pregnant during adolescence. 29% are unemployed. Um, you know, there's no doubt the economic, social and health issues that span a lifetime after mm. an um, upbringing that is cast with a lack of belonging anywhere and and identity you know statistics are one thing and it's very easy for them to sort of wash past mm. uh, you know their, their numbers but when you think about um when we all think about our homes and what it's like to what you know how you belong in your family and and who you are compared to how you fit and how what kind of love you get in that family uh, and then you look at a child who doesn't have that at all. So what they have instead is this constant change because the majority of kids are moved from home to home. Very few are lucky enough to find um, foster parents or any sort of permanency in that out-of-home mm. care system. So they have, you know, it's little things like you move into a new home and suddenly you've got to find where the light switches are and which cupboard are the glasses in and oh I've got new adults in charge with new sets of rules mm. and these adults know nothing about me so there's these rules and I've got to find a way to fit into this new home um, and then I have new housemates and siblings and how do I fit in in that family so you know you might live there for six months and then suddenly you've got a new home so it's this constant change um, so you can understand that when they get to 20 years old or even younger there's a sense of loss, like who am I and where do I belong? How do I belong in this world? Mm. And you can see how people end up committing crimes or or feeling like 
you know, stuff it, um, to use a, a nicer word than <laughs> what I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> um, this is the, the, who cares, you know, all this stuff has happened. I need to, I'm going to do whatever, whatever. It doesn't matter, you know, this sense of helplessness. Mm. And I think once once you look at it in terms of a family, like they're meant to have a family, um, you can see why they, you know, those statistics are so bad. Mm. Yes, I mean, when you think about what a book does, you know, often a book has a neat redemption arc. You have a character who starts out having a problem and then by the end of the book they have recovered from that problem and you have a neat ending where everything works out and everyone lives happily ever after. Obviously that isn't the true story for a lot of these kids, most of these kids. We've talked about this a little bit and I know this is something that people ask you and I I don't want to probe. I'm interested in how... What assumptions do readers make about your experiences when they read this book? A lot. <laughs> um, actually, it's a bit awkward. I'm going to go to it. You're probably not expecting me to say this, mm. but um, the, some people expect to see Sophie when they meet me. And I've had uh, occasions where I've gone to events and people have really loved the book, uh, especially actually out of home kids really connected with mm. it, which was extraordinarily amazing for me. But I'd go um, and they'd be like, oh, this is the person who wrote it. And so they'd look at me and I could see they're hoping for Sto- for Sophie. Um, unfortunately, I'm much older, more boring, more set in my ways, <laughs> and I'm probably a little bit of a disappointment. Um, so that's that's one one angle. Um, another one is that they think I've written an autobiography, which I tried to do and failed. Um, I'm not as brave as you, Anna. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I want to talk about yours in a minute, by the way. Um, But I couldn't do this amazing thing that you're doing. I found that as soon as I sat down to write the true story, I was silenced by the truth. Mm. Uh, I kept worrying about who I was going to upset, um, the wrong thing I might say, you know, and then I started fresh. I started with a new page and I started to explore what that would look like if it wasn't an autobiography. Uh, And people, who read it though still assume it is an autobiography and it is not. So I am not Sophie. Sophie's a bit cooler than me. <laughs> um, I find and, that very hard to believe. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, people have asked me some questions where I'm like, I did not <laughs> sign up for admitting all my um, all my skeletons in my closet. This is a fictional book. So I do have to set a couple of people straight there. So, yeah, people do make assumptions but I can I sort of don't blame them as well because it is inspired by real life. Hmm. Do you think that's important that a book, I'm just thinking about own voices books and how crucial it has or how obvious it has become that it is crucial to tell stories from the margins as people who have lived there, I suppose. Is that something Mm. that you thought about while you were writing this? Uh, I did a little but more in in a sense of fear. Mm. When I left the homes, I ran as fast as I could uh, because I felt like um, I had to try to get my life right or I was going to go down with the ship. Mm. So I, I just put it, pushed it out of my mind, to be honest, and it took a, a long time. I went back to university. I went back to school, went back to university, um, worked really, really hard, and then I was like I realised 
where I'd come from. I hadn't actually thought about it for a really long time. And I thought, you know what, I'm here now and I have this really loud voice. I'm a journalist. Um, I look at me. I even have a place to live of my own. I have my dog that I love. Mm. Uh, and, and then I was thinking back to the girl I was that didn't have any of that um, and in particular didn't have a voice. Uh, so when I started writing it, I didn't think about the fact so much that I'd had that experience only that I needed to get that experience on the page and tell the story. But as I progressed along the road, I started to realize um, what a difference it makes when you have had that lived experience and how much authenticity you can invest Mm. in the stories. For a while there, I was uh, teaching writing at Deakin and it was something we talked about a lot there, uh, people writing what they know because uh, their perspective and their experiences are unique even if that thing has happened to a million people, which it probably has mm. happened to even more than that, but your experience of that issue is unique. So I think it's really important to support own own voices, writers. Um, but, look, it's a troubled issue because I don't think people should be limited to what they write at the same time. So I know that's all a bit controversial. Um, if people can sympathise, I've just gone into that <laughs> that old uh, chestnut. Uh, um, I'm a bit scared. If people want to write. Yes, keep going. <laughs> should I stop? <laughs> look, I think writers should write the thing they're inspired to write. But if they don't know anything about an issue, they should be very, very careful. Mm. I guess I'll leave it there. Well, I'm interested in, I mean, an issue like this, obviously there are issues within um, homelessness and children in care, teenagers and young adults in care. There are issues of, you know, school attendance, literacy issues, things that might hinder someone's ability to have their story heard what can readers do do you think or what can be done more broadly to make sure that we can hear some of these stories from people who want to share them you know I don't mean like go and mine people's stories against their will but if you know Mm. there must be people like you who feel that they do want to at some point in their life share this experience that has happened to them um how can we do better in terms of facilitating that i've been asked this quite a few times and i always um no that's okay it's um i just it's such a big thing like where do you even begin i guess you begin by listening and by caring about the story um, and giving people the skills to be able to tell their own story. And if they would prefer to go through somebody else, then um, for people to listen to them. But, like, I wonder from your perspective, because you have the ability to write both fiction and nonfiction, um, I wonder how um, how you find, because you talk a lot about mental health and you've won awards for your incredible mental health writing, um, the suicide gene just, you know, I didn't move while I read that. I was just <laughs> frozen on the spot, right? So if listeners out there have not read that, I highly recommend you do read it. Um, and you've got a book coming out next year, is it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, um, which is a memoir. Um, and you also write fiction. I wonder how you couple that together, that writing of the fiction and um, mm. and nonfiction. I think a lot of nonfiction ends up in fiction, which is something I'm interested. Yeah, I was interested in hearing about with you as well the way that your experience 
influence the book that you wrote, even though it was fictional. <laughs> Some of mine yeah. shows up a bit more literally. <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> my dad, I can't remember if I've said this to you before, but like uh, in one of my novels, The Golf, there are a lot of scenes where this girl, Sky, who's 16, she reflects on things that she did with her dad. And so many of them are things that I did with my dad. And my dad <laughs> read this book and he was like, you know that scene where she goes to the the plane that's at McDonald's and they sit in the plane at McDonald's and they eat their lunch? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah. You know how we went to that plane at McDonald's? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just extract things from my memory and use them as fiction, um, which is, but I guess that's how you know true things about the world you know what I knew from going to McDonald's there was this it was very cool actually Westlake's McDonald's in Adelaide they had a plane a real plane cemented into mm-hmm. the ground in the playground so you could oh a real, you, plane. A real plane so you could go wow. and sit in the plane and eat your like on the, the fold-out table and everything um mm-hmm. but what I knew from doing that with my dad was how much my dad wanted to do that with us so it was on the other side of town, which in Adelaide is not very far, but when I was a kid it was a really long way. Um, he wanted to do that with us so much that he would get us all ready, take us to the other side of town, go to McDonald's, which he hated, and eat McDonald's in a plane because it was something that meant that we were together and it was he worked really hard and he worked away a lot and it was a way to be totally present with us. And so what I knew from that wasn't, we literally went and sat in a plane at McDonald's. But here's what I understand to be true about what happens when a dad spends time with his child, I guess. Mm. And so And that yeah. That realization comes through the writing too, doesn't it? Yeah. And when I thought yeah. about what that meant for his character, those were the kinds of things I was drawing on. Not this that it was literally something I did with my dad, but the feelings that being there with my dad brought out in me. Here's my dad. He cares about me. We are, you know, we are friends. We love each other. We're having a nice time together. And I think it's impossible not to draw on life to find those kinds of, you know, emotions or truths about life or what you understand about people. Like how else do you know that? other than mm-hmm. the way that you've experienced it in your life. So I think I draw a lot, a lot on real life to put into fiction. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's through the actual scenes or, you know, like an approximation of a person. Um, a lot of it is autobiographical. I think a lot of writing is autobiographical anyway. I think a lot of people's writing it comes from how they understand the world, um, what they know about people and people's interactions with each other. And I think some of that is sort of necessarily autobiographical. I don't know how you get outside of that experience to write about it in a way that isn't. Which is tricky, isn't it? Because if you write something <laughs> fictional, then people think, I often think of um, Stephen King, <laughs> like he wrote Carrie. Like what kind of person writes Carrie? Who is yeah, he? Yeah. And I guess that's, uh, we were talking about this the other week, weren't we, where people, you know, are mining their own experiences and then in a way telling people something about themselves without even meaning to. Mm. I think fiction, <laughs> I think fiction in particular does that really, really well because, you know, memoir is uh, is sort of stylized autobiography, right? It's like 
choose how to create a narrative arc where there isn't one because life usually isn't created like that. You know, you don't have a moment where it's obvious that everything started usually and then you don't usually have a moment where it's obvious that everything has ended unless you're somehow writing it like from beyond the grave. There's not a clear here's how the story went in retrospect. Mm. It doesn't exactly work that way. And so you have to mould something out of real life and so you have more control over what you present, I think. Whereas if you are writing something fictional, the truths about yourself come through in the subtext of it. You know, you're writing about (laughs) someone who doesn't exist or you're writing about a place that's made up or you're writing about events that never happened. And in doing that, you sort of betray what you really believe about things. You know, it comes through in the way that characters talk to each other, in the way that, you know, Mm. this isn't me repeating a, a conversation that I had. It's how I think people interact with each other or it's this character holds a belief that I hold and this is how I would interrogate it or this is, you know, there's so there's a lot of what happens in fiction that, yeah, has a less literal um, kind of truth to it about who somebody is. I don't know what that means about Stephen King. I I don't know whether he's <laughs> secretly like, you know, just an absolutely terrifying murderous horror seems really nice a lot of writers that I know now who write all kinds of things grew up reading horror and mm. lots of them I grew up reading I don't read genre fiction very much now but I grew up inhaling Stephen King and Christopher Pike books and mm-hmm. there was something about the way that a horror story played on all of the senses that I really, really loved. It was such a sensory experience to be scared while reading and like to have a story that would frighten you even though it was just words on a page. And I think it it sort of helped me to understand the impact that a story can have at one level. Yeah. While we write differently in different types of books, we do have some similar streams that, um, mm. that cross over and one of them is mental health. Mm. Uh, and you write beautifully about mental health. Thank you. You know, what, what happens to those people who don't um, get the help that they need mm. uh, and, and are on their own, like people like Sophie and, and even people um, who have those supports? What happens? Mm. What have you found? I mean, they have some similar, lots, in fact, of similar and crossover sort of outcomes really, you know, that uh, in serious or complex mental illness that homelessness is a major issue long-term unemployment is a major issue. The way that people can manage interpersonal relationships is often quite deeply affected. That if you don't have support, it's often a self-perpetuating cycle, you know, in the same way that pulling yourself out of poverty is extremely difficult pulling yourself out mm. of mental ill health is also extremely difficult it's a continuing cyclical um almost like a self-fulfilling sort of illness which is I'm too sick to get help and so my health just gets worse and then it's even more difficult for me to get help and the system makes it so difficult to find that help you know it's so expensive the expense of mental health care is just enormous i don't know if people realize how expensive it is but 
For example, for inpatient private mental health hospital care, that's about $3,000 a week. It costs, unless you can get bulk billed, which is increasingly rare, getting a mental health care plan is going to cost you around about $120 after the Medicare rebate. Um, Having an ongoing psychologist, which now we get 20 sessions a year subsidized what used to be 10 but covid (laughs) covid boosted it the only good thing maybe that covid did um those sessions out of pocket are still going to cost you know 80 or 90 dollars usually and Mm -hmm. a psychiatrist which is also subsidized by medicare those initial sessions with a psychiatrist can cost upwards of you know four to six hundred dollars out of pocket initially you know upfront payment and then you get a rebate but you need to be able to pay for a lot of this stuff up front and mm. it's at the same time as it's more difficult to work it's more difficult to find stable housing you know to access some parts of Medicare, you need to have a fixed address that you need to be well enough to go to your session and all these compounding factors that mean that for someone who really is struggling with mental illness there's just so many obstacles to trying to make any sort of progress. And so, oh, yeah, like, so frustrating. Well, it just feels, you know, it, it feels like there's no correct way to have mental illness that's going to get you help. So either you're too sick to ask for it, and that includes also not having the language to be able to articulate what the matter is or not feeling empowered to advocate for yourself, which is, of course, extremely common if you're feeling like mm. you're not going to be believed or that you um, nobody's believed you before or also, you know, that you don't matter, that your opinion isn't important, all these things that come with having severe mental illness or complex mental illness. Um all of those factors contribute to not being able to get the right care. So either you're too sick to be able to effectively get help or you're not sick enough for someone to take your need for help seriously and then you just get And then more when and you are sick, sick enough, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. you can't ask for the help. Exactly. And for kids in care, the ones that end up incarcerated, the ones that end up with drug issues Mm. or you know breaking down for them it starts so young so for them they're in their you know they're 18 I think it's it's changed now to 21 years old when you're uh, booted out of the system it was 18 years old when I was um in care but recently and thankfully it's been changed to 21 years old um you know then you're going out and you've got all your your mental health issues and in a fact in a in a way you're scared of um the system so you're more less likely to even seek help and then mm. as you just said if you try to seek help it's so expensive that those those people are shut out anyway mm. yeah and i mean someone those who needs afford- that expensive care uh they're less likely to have the means to earn the income to be able to afford that expensive care it's just this impossible catch 22 and I don't Mm. it's extremely frustrating to not see any any future changes to the system that are going to make that better that there just isn't an imaginable future where someone does especially with the changes they're now making to the NDIS which are terrible there's no way to imagine that someone would get the right help more easily 
in a more affordable way. I just can't see how that happens. Um, but I'm just looking at these statistics, like the median age of onset for anxiety disorders is 11 and half of all mental health conditions that we experience at some point in our lives will have started by the time we turn 14. And the leading mm. cause of death in Australians aged 15 to 24 is suicide. So like mental <laughs> mental illness is <laughs> very early onset. You know, a lot of people who have ongoing lifelong sort of complex mental illness develop that mental illness when they're children. Um, and like what child, this is something that I reflect on a lot and think about all the time, what child has the language to be able to say like I seem to be having a dissociative episode and I'm eight mm. and I don't, you know, I don't have the language to describe that. And we give, we sort of equip people with a lot of the language that they need to describe physical ailments, which are also extremely difficult to treat and get the right care for. Um, so true. But, you know, we have like, oh, my elbow hurts or we have words to like I feel sick or I, and we don't have that kind of language for mental illness and we don't teach it to children. And so when you then get to become an adult, you know, you get to 20 and you're like, I, I feel absolutely horrible all the time. What's the matter with me? I'm going to go to my GP because that's what the signs say. You know, I've seen a billboard that has a 1-800 number on it. it. They've told me to go to my doctor. And how do I describe what the matter is? How do I effectively mm. communicate my like inner turmoil or, you know, how stricken I feel every day or how I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. How do I communicate that to a doctor who can then sort of jam it into their clinical diagnostic system? And it's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And so what then happens is people don't get the right care. It takes so many years to find the right care for a mental, for like a, especially for a complex mental illness. And, you know, mm -hmm. often, you don't think it's getting better. Um <laughs> Is it getting better? There's less <laughs> stigma for some mental illnesses. There's definitely more awareness and actually there's almost like an overabundance of awareness at one level where I think there was a study a few years ago by maybe by Beyond Blue um, about how many Australians are aware of anxiety and it was something like 85% of people are aware that anxiety exists and it's a real thing. And still a lot of the money, most of the money, seems to be channeled into awareness campaigns. And so knowing mm. that most people are aware of it, we still spend tens of millions of dollars every year on, you know, <laughs> campaigns with Hollywood actors in them or flashy uh. brochures with TVCs or, you know, the stuff that detracts from actually helping people with preventative, especially preventative care. but people like me who live with chronic complex mental illness ongoing and have done for decades, the maintenance that's required, the, that kind of maintenance care or, you know, it's still there. It's still there. A lot of what I feel as someone who is a patient of this system is that I spend quite a bit of money going being forced to by the system to go to a professional and say, yes, I still feel bad. They go, do you need another 10 appointments? Well, yes, and I will probably ongoing for the rest of my life. Like this isn't, it's not something that I'm going to be cured of. And that is something that the mental health care system sorely misunderstands as well. 
Um, so, yeah, I think there's less stigma about, you know, low-level sort of anxiety and depression that can be quite effectively treated. Um, but I do think the, the gap is almost widening. Um, people's understanding of some of these clinical symptoms is changing. So, you know, we use anxiety. Anxiety is sort of a buzzword now uh, and depression as well, that the spectrum of feelings that they can cover is so vast that on the other end of that anxiety spectrum, you know, you have people who have serious paranoid schizophrenia or who, um, you know, are hearing voices or who are having psychotic breaks or who are significantly delusional. And those things can fit into some of the criteria of things like anxiety. But the the way that we understand anxiety has changed to be something that, you know, everybody's, everybody feels a level of anxiety. The clinical nature of it is becoming less easy to distinguish, I think. And that's a language thing too. Part of why I write about mental illness is because I want to try to give people more vocabulary to kind of advocate for themselves and to talk about how they're feeling, that anxiety and depression are such limited words um, that how can that encapsulate what you're actually experiencing and therefore help you to get the support that you need? Mm, I think, um, I mean, I've been lucky enough to read some of your memoir um, and the way that you illustrate moments in time um, is is truly so powerful. Like I, I just can't wait for your book to come out. And I think that it will it, it will do exactly what you've just said and that is open conversations because you've really, um, yeah, there's just this one scene in the hospital. You know, I won't, I'm not going to say anything, <laughs> but um, people will read it when it comes out. But, uh, you know, I just keep thinking about these little scenes. They come back to me and it seems to, to really give a face to mental health that isn't buzzed because you're quite right. There's so much money going into awareness. We know that. what are we going to do about mm. it. We sort of keep listening to the wrong people in that awareness building as well. You know, there isn't enough disability representation on boards or on advisory committees or making decisions about marketing and that the people who are doing that are not always or often enough the people who have the lived experience that will help them to be able to better communicate and articulate it, which I think is a real problem uh, and one that would be fairly easily rectified. You know, it feels Mm. like hey, half our board should be made up of people with lived experience of mental illness. Let's make that just like the criteria that we have for for getting people onto our board. Absolutely. And how that would change the help and support that people would get. Um, Yeah. I feel like that would be, you know, just not that hard, but it doesn't, the the system is kind of so slow moving and and slow to change. And, uh, yeah, I think... uh, I think what you said about the face of mental illness is interesting because complex mental illness is very frightening to a lot of people. But they, you know, there's a good chance that they know someone who lives with it and that that person, that they wouldn't guess that about that person, you know, that they wouldn't, unless they mm-hmm. told them that they wouldn't know that about that person, that here is someone who you know, is able to study or hold down a job or who seems 
you know, happy and fine when I interact with them or, and underneath that is this experience of complex mental illness. And how can that be right? Because, you know, my understanding of it is someone muttering to themselves on a train platform. And that's, that's the extent of what I understand and what I'm kind of willing to understand about what complex mental illness is like. And, and to be afraid of that as well, instead of like with Stone Girl, instead of understanding the process that has got that person there and how afraid that person is. You know, I mean, violence in people with complex mental illness that, uh, you know, people who don't have complex mental illness think that someone who does is going to be violent towards them, that they are going to have Mm. some kind of episode that means that they lash out and that they are violent. And someone who has complex mental illness is much more likely to be the victim of violence, which isn't to say that they're never violent, but it's much more likely that someone will be violent towards them. And these things that people haven't got ways of understanding because the narrative is missing, because like with Stone Girl, understanding what that process kind of looks like from start to finish or what a chunk of someone's life looks like to have led them to the point where they are now or what the day-to-day of living with complex mental illness looks like, that those narratives are still missing. And I think mm. that's that plays a significant role in funding, in the way that organisations are managed, in who controls them and all kinds of things. Yeah. I think that's the same as well with the cliched representation that you see in books and art and, and the way that newspapers sometimes cover uh, episodes of violence. And there's a lot of work to be done in terms of how we understand each other mm. as a human race. Yes, there is. <laughs> that's getting a bit existential, <laughs> but, um, but you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so those are my thoughts on that very simple topic. So much to think about with what you said. (laughs) Well, so good talking to you, (laughs) as always. So good talking to you. Always a pleasure. That was Alini Hale and Anna Spigo-Ryan. Alini's book Stone Girl, as well as Anna's The Paper House and The Gulf, are available at all good bookstores, as well as available to borrow via Yarra Libraries. Anna's Horn Prize writing piece The Suicide Gene can be read for free online via the website anaspargoryan.com. Special thanks to our podcast partner, Fitzroy Legal Service, a community legal service covering the cities of Yarra and Darabin and providing criminal, family, family violence and generalist legal services to socially and economically disadvantaged clients with a particular focus on people stigmatised and criminalised due to poverty, homelessness, childhood abuse, family violence, trauma, drug use, mental health, contact with the criminal legal system and incarceration. This podcast was brought to you by the Ewing Trust, a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. And Yarra Libraries, a network of five libraries across the city of Yarra. These libraries change lives of residents of Yarra and visitors to the area through promoting learning, sharing vital resources and providing places where communities can connect and grow. Thank you to everyone involved with the making of this podcast and with Fitzroy Writers Festival 2021.